This podcast is from the Rand Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about us and to explore Rand's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries. Welcome to Rand. Really thankful for all of you to be here tonight um, to talk about two of my favorite topics killer sentient robots (laughs) and big brother. Um, And uh, I think through the course of this discussion, we'll see why these two things collide in in interesting ways and why Rand is really uh, involved and interested in doing research on artificial intelligence um, and on privacy. Um, But before we get started, um, let me just give some working definitions Um, for this discussion. So AI, um, artificial intelligence, if we go to a newspaper stand in in an airport, you'll see it all over uh, the magazines, newspapers, and you'll see this phrase AI. And it's become this buzzword that means a lot of things to a lot of different people. Um, But for the purposes of this discussion, we're going to assume that it means a non-biologic, so made by humans, autonomous, acts on its own, learning system, so something that can learn on its own, so a non-biologic, autonomous learning system. Privacy, um, there's lots of different types of privacy, so there's physical privacy, and there's emotional privacy, and there's digital privacy, Um, but for the standpoint of this discussion, let me read this just so I get it right, Rebecca. Um, It's, you know, when, when one has control over what is shared, known, or exposed about themselves, um, so the, for the purposes of this discussion, those are our two working definitions. That's, that's where we're going to go with today. I always like to start discussions like this by, um, by asking our panelists to tell a personal story about the topic that we're in. So Ashande, I'd like to start with you. Can you tell a story about a time in which you've been surprised to find out that you were actually dealing with AI um, mm. and not dealing with a human? Mm. I guess we always assume, I always assume that even if it's not AI, it's some regularly programmed system. And I think uh, the, the example that comes to mind is on Netflix. I, I've always known that Netflix does this um, AI for recommendation systems for recommending what types of movies you might like to watch. But I hadn't quite realized to what extent that personalization went until I switched over to my sister's account. It turns out she likes a lot of um, Korean dramas, Korean drama from South Korea. And Whenever they recommend some of the shows I watch to her, they use different pictures. It turns out that it's more than just selecting um, movies for you to you might be interested in. It's also about selecting how they present the movies you might be interested in. So they pick different parts of the of the movie to appeal to you the most. That was interesting. That was an interesting discovery. Oh, very good. And Rebecca. Um, so when people talk about privacy, a lot of times they're talking about the trade-offs they make between sharing their information or letting someone in um, and maybe a service or something that they get back in return. When, um, and as a privacy expert, when have you found yourself making a trade-off between <laughs> uh, your privacy and maybe a service or an offering? Sure. Well, I use a smartphone all the time. And uh, my story of sort of this trade-off or a surprising AI event was I was you know it was winter time I had this goal of going to the gym in the evening and I found myself going Wednesday evenings I would just drive a few minutes to go to the gym um, and one day I get into the car and my iPhone gives me a notice of how long it will take me to get to the gym from my home to the gym so it is picked up on this pattern that I am going there regularly at 8 p.m. on Wednesday evenings. And I know this could be useful, but for me, it's, you know, a, a one-mile drive on residential streets, and the traffic never changes unless there's a <laughs> snowstorm. Right? So it was just, it was a, you know, they're gathering a lot of information about my patterns, my habits, what's my home, where am I going, when am I doing it, for this information that was com- that was really not useful at all to me. And in, in particular, if, if, the, if it took me 15 minutes to get to the gym instead of 10 minutes, you know, it's okay. Right, right. <laughs> well, that's kind of um. scary. <laughs> so as I think about 
maybe how everyone in this audience might deal with um, artificial and intelligent systems or synthetic intelligent systems, um, I think about Internet of Things um, devices and maybe some smart home devices. Mm-hmm. Um, Ashande, like, what is... Uh, what makes Alexa, Google Home, some of these personal assistants, what, what makes them so good at knowing our needs? Um, I guess I might argue that maybe we are not so unpredictable. We are quite predictable as humans. And um, well, it's sort of true. Mm-hmm. Most people have the pattern of, of life in which they wake up, they take a coffee, go to work, and they come back from work after eight hours of work. You have enough people doing that, you get pretty good at, expect- at figuring out what they want, what they need every day. Um, <clears throat> and you add to that the idea that they actually, these systems are able to observe a wide array of pattern of life signals, how often you open the fridge, how often you talk to your spouse at home. All that information goes in to inform very automatically, very intelligent systems on what you might need in the future. It's not that hard, I would argue. Like if you compare the task of trying to imagine what I might need to the task of trying to forecast demand for a whole consumer base, Amazon does that every day routinely with artificial intelligence. Doing it for one person is not that difficult. And Rebecca, you did a piece of work um, on looking at the smartphone and trying to see if the user the, the user agreement that you sign actually accounts for all the data that might be you know being used in the system or collected by the system. What did you find? Well, first, let me correct you. You don't actually sign it. <laughs> you may or may not see the notice and quickly swipe it away, so you don't you can do what you're trying to do. Um, but y- yes, you're definitely missing a lot of information. You may get information about what types of data are being collected. And sometimes that's not very useful. Uh, Previously, Android had like 12 different data types to tell you that Wi-Fi was being accessed. Um, But the other thing is it doesn't tell you where that data is going or how often. So if you are actually seeing your location was collected uh, 1,000 times in the past 24 hours, and that is not an unrealistic number, and it went to... 13 different advertising companies, that's when people start to get surprised because they don't know those advertising companies. They're, it's, they were thinking, okay, well, Google Maps is using my location. It's a surprise. It's unexpected use of information. It's an unexpected amount of information. And you don't know who you're sharing it with. Right. So, I mean, it, I, your, your mapping story to the side, like, I kind of dig it when these things know what my favorite song is or like what my you know date night mood lighting is. Um, but sorry, but I mean it's it's great, right? So, but what else? I mean, I guess it leads to the question of if they're always listening and they're always learning, like what else could they use this for? And are we adequately protected or at least informed? Let me say informed to the use. Like what what are some other ways that this data could be used? Well, so one thing that Let's just think about advertising. One thing that one thing that advertisers are very interested in is when you're vulnerable. So, are you going through a change in your life where you might buy more, or you might be vulnerable enough to be persuaded to buy more? So, are you pregnant? Are you getting married? Has there been a death in your family? So, advertisers are really interested in that information, and they can get a lot of it through these Internet of Things devices. How many people are in your house? Has that changed? Has your pattern changed? So, the changes in have you eaten all day that affects how susceptible you are to impulse buys. Yes, yes, exactly. So, even if we just take the case of advertising, which is not as maybe harmful or as malicious as identity theft or, um, you know, having your health insurance taken away or some of these other sort of terrible uses of your data, maybe you're just uncomfortable with advertisers recognizing when you're vulnerable or when you're going through a life change. Can I... I Poke a little bit of that. Yes. <laughs> so, so I think part of what you're saying is that there, there is an inherent uncertainty about the purpose, the use of, of any data you, that's being collected. But then there's also huge advantages that might be reaped after the fact. Think about um, Google flu trends, search data, which informs people about um, biosurveillance, about flu, flu outbreaks, or, I don't know, uh, think 
actually they use the same thing with social media data, figuring out using social media data to kind of get a sense of how of how much influenza is affecting one particular part of the country. Uh, I, I get the I get the the problem that privacy is a concern, but there is restricting the the, the collection of this data prevents very valuable uses going forward. So actually, Target, I guess, could could tell women that they were pregnant before they knew they were pregnant, um, which is kind of crazy. They were sending uh, coupons for prenatal vitamins, and they actually had a father of a teenager call up and say, why are you sending her these coupons? Mm. And uh, only later did she tell him that, yes, indeed, she was pregnant. Crazy. Um, okay, so we're we're into a space now that, um, for me, is, is has uh, I've dedicated a lot of my attention to research-wise, and that is thinking about fairness and equity um, when you're thinking about AI and when you're thinking about privacy. Um, so, Ashanda, you and I penned a piece. Um, thinking about um, the potential for bias um, in artificial intelligence. Um, and I guess the question I want you to answer f- for me um, is how on earth can machines have bias? Well, bias is a bit of a contextual concern. Equity is a bit of a contextual concern. And uh, it turns out that machines learn from what humans gave it to, to learn from. They learn from the data which they are trained. They learn from the models the designers um, implement to, to uh, fix, to achieve some task. So any type of normative constraints on those, either the data or the models will, will bleed into the decisions coming out. Um, to be more concrete about it, um, there is the issue of weird white um, white, uh, educated. Yeah. So one of the things that comes up in... Yeah. It's an acronym? It's an acronym. It's an acronym okay. that a lot of the research is done on, uh, like, well-educated, white, Western societies. Okay. Um, Especially since they do the research in, on college campuses and their, their test subjects are uh, uh, weird mm-hmm. people. But it turns out, essentially, that uh, when, you're training, when you're training machine learning algorithms, especially things like facial recognition... The quality of your decision, the quality of your outcomes depends very strongly on the type of data you train it on. So if your data, if your population on which you're training is more homogeneous than the true population on which you deploy, you're going to be more, more successful, more accurate on that type of population. So we are seeing reports uh, last week, I think this is not new, but last week The Economist had a piece on how facial recognition algorithms are more accurate on white people versus people of color. And that's not, it's not like the machine is doing something malicious. It's just that the data available to train the system is of a specific type. Um, we also see this in language, too. This is, this is where the question of what counts as bias becomes a bit fuzzy. We find that in people's use of language, they tend to think of, they have gendered ideas of what certain types of nouns are. So um, a couple months back, a nature paper came up with the finding that people based on people's use of language online. People think of doctors as male, which is not a surprise. They think of nurses as female, which is also not a surprise. And, but that might seem innocuous, but when you start thinking about the application of those same language systems in online job advertising processes, then you have these biases seeping into what types of jobs are being recommended for women versus men. And it's not just a question of men versus women or race. Anytime there is a subclassification of the general population, if there is not enough data on all parts of the population on which you're deploying the, the system, you're going to have this disparities in, in, in fairness, disparities in outcomes, which sometimes matter quite a bit. For example, the most recent one, the most recent egregious example is um, the use of algorithms in, in sentencing recidivism, um, estimating recidivism risk. And they found that the algorithm does a better job than humans. And that's what we expect usually. We train them to be better than humans in some tasks. But then, is that enough to justify the disparities in risks that come out from using these algorithms? So they found that people of color are more likely to be, to be found to be of higher risk for the same characteristics than people who are not of color. That's a decision we are going to have to parse, we're going to have to play with as we go forward using machine learning algorithms in society. 
So I think one of the things um, is not, and just correct me if I'm wrong, is not just the data that's being collected and being fed into these uh, algorithms, which algorithms is another one of those phrases, and I know we have mm. a very intelligent audience here, but um, for those of you who aren't familiar with what, you know, when we say algorithms, what we're talking about, it's really a recipe for how you're going to take that data um, and, and use it to a particular end. Um, but it's not just the, the data that you're feeding in. Um, it's also the people who are creating those recipes, right? Mm -hmm. And their implicit um, assumptions about the world, mm -hmm. right? Yes. Um, and and the, fact, the fact that most of them are coming from very specific uh, or very certain socioeconomic yeah. backgrounds. So I was just talking to a, a user interface designer a few minutes ago, and she mentioned that, in fact, um, user interface design is susceptible to these bias problems also. People who design interfaces, if they don't have a better, a complete, a comprehensive understanding of their population, they tend to design without, uh, without clear-cut, without paying attention to problems that other types of people might, might be subject to. So for example, um, according to Carol, I believe, uh, yes, uh, women and children are more susceptible to motion sickness in cars. And so the people who designed it, older white men, were less likely to design to, con to take that into consideration. And so having people like her working in that space makes a big deal. It, it, it focuses attention on these types of problems. Same thing with algorithms. Having people who, who, ha who have more experience with the diversity of the people on which their, their models be applied to makes them more intelligent, more contextual in how they make their design choices. Okay. All right. So... You haven't gotten off free on this one. We got to talk about <laughs> fairness and equity with privacy. So life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness um, is an inalienable right. Um, uh, privacy. It's privacy and an inalienable right. Um, uh, it, what's the situation there? I mean, it seems like maybe if you are well enough informed or have enough money that you can actually buy yourself a bit more privacy. But is that, is that truly what's happening? Like, what's the situation? Oh, there's uh, so many ways to answer your question. Uh, first of all, just you know where privacy fits in in our rights, I would argue that you need privacy to support a lot of the other rights that we have. Um, freedom of speech, if you feel like you're being surveyed and watched, this may have a chilling effect on what you're willing to say. So you know, as we read in 1984, um, in the book 1984. Um, so we, we need privacy to support a lot of the other rights. The United Declaration of uh, Human Rights has declared privacy a human right, and it's referenced in, in you know, particular physical privacy. It's been referenced in many of the ancient religious texts as something that's important to people. So I would argue that, yes, privacy, although it's not written into our Constitution explicitly, it's mm -hmm. a human right. Um, but your your question was uh, also about um, related to what Ashande was saying about differences, about bias, and yeah. so I think there's no question in this country that some vulnerable populations are surveyed more. They're more likely to enter into uh, government institutions or agencies that collect a lot of information about them. So if you are trying to receive prenatal care but you are on a, um, uh, you receive uh, government help in getting your medicine, they will ask you a like 100 question long, very invasive question about um, how hard were you trying to get pregnant and so on. Oh, wow. um, but, but for most of us who aren't in that insurance program, we don't get asked those questions. Um, if you are receiving any of the like, um, SNAP or CHIP or any of those benefits, they're, they're tracking you. They're making sure that you are, um, uh, you know, you have to prove things over and over again. And then even if you're looking at some of the surveillance we do to prevent crime, if you're thinking about where those cameras are, where those audio detectors are, they're in different neighborhoods mm -hmm. than um, other neighborhoods. So there's definitely just different amounts of data that are being collected about different populations, and in particular, vulnerable populations. We're collecting more information about them, particularly to use to, de to find out if they're doing something wrong, right, to, to see like it's sort of this assumption that th there's something wrong that's going to happen, so we need to watch and detect it as soon as possible. Interesting. So I would like to see a crime map that includes white-collar crime. <laughs> 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 I haven't seen that yet. <laughs> but right. 
Right. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. So, um, oh, there's a lot of stuff running through my mind right now. I'm just thinking about all the times that I've checked yes for my uh, medical records to be uh, made electronic because I feel like it's going to give me better diagnosis. But I wonder, did I ch- if I check no, do I all of a sudden opt out of better medical care? Mm. Like it's an interesting, interesting set of questions. Um, but let me bring this back to Rand because we're here in this wonderful building um, uh, between these two great universities. Uh, if, if I gave you guys your moonshot, um, of you know doing policy analysis uh, at RAN in these particular topics, um, where would you spend your next dollar? And I'm going to start with Rebecca. So I think um, we do want to take advantage of the awesome benefits in AI that Oshande mentioned, but, but people. <laughs> 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 But people need to understand what's going on. So if decisions are being made about them, whether, you know, if, a, if an elementary school teacher is fired because a, some AI system has determined they're not doing their job well, they, that person needs to understand that decision so that they can either give feedback or mm-hmm. argue against it or improve whatever they did that made them get fired. And what we don't really have now is a good system to communicate to everyone. Like, we don't have a way of communicating what's how AI made their decisions that an elementary teacher could understand. It would be great if we could even get to a point that uh, policymakers who are making decisions about implementing them can understand. But it's it's complicated, right? So how even understanding these complicated algorithms and systems, there's a lot of work that needs to happen before yeah. we can get there. Right, right. And I would love to do that work. Very good. Very good. <laughs> and so to add more complexity to, to that issue, um, this idea of how do you explain the decisions, how do you explain the outcomes of an algorithm, it turns out that when we talk about explanations, we are not really clear what we mean. There is no robust, stable definition of, a, of an explanation. Oftentimes we mean rationalization. Oftentimes we mean, um, okay, what went into making that decision? And depending on the context, that may not be enough, or may, 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 may be enough. Um, I see your point, but <laughs> I, I, I would like us to... So a lot of the conversation within, within the United States, at least in the Western world, has been focused in the context of AI on, well, how do we make safe AI? And that's an important question. Like, how do you make them safe, either by making them explain themselves or not? But then there's also the, the assumption... There, I feel like we are biasing ourselves towards not paying attention to the full benefits AI has to offer a large portion of the, of the world. Um, if you think about just porting what we've done with what we ha- our expertise with artificial intelligence in the West to less fortunate countries, you have the potential to do awesome things. Think about credit scoring. Using machine learning to improve credit scoring might, mean, might make the difference but for credit for people who are trying to start businesses in, in some poor country, say in Africa or, so, or Southeast Asia. Um, that, I feel like, is something we need to focus more on. We haven't been doing a good job of that so far. But besides that... Um, Wait, you're giving me two answers? I'm giving you two answers. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Catherine, can we allow this? <laughs> okay, very good. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, besides that, uh, one of the things we, you and I wrote about was in the future of work. And th- there is Sorry, the, you said the future of... The future of work. work. Like what yep. happens in the future if we have automation? Uh, how does that affect the labor market? And the general consensus has been that there is going to be at least some churn. Maybe not job loss completely, but some people will have to be displaced and find other jobs. And one of the things that seems to be, one of the trends that seems to be coming up is there is not as much a robust enough system for essentially a safety net for people who are going through this job churn. And it'd be interesting as a policy think tank to start thinking about robust mechanisms, either on the private or on the public sector, to try to safeguard people's livelihoods, even when they lose their jobs, even when they're switching between jobs. Okay. Yeah, I think it's an important... um, and the piece that we wrote, I think we captured this in the executive summary, so you don't have to read anything beyond the executive <laughs> summary, but um, it's important because uh, the way that uh, algorithms are being applied um, in, the, um, in affecting 
um, communities of professionals um, are no longer just focused on what, what we might say a blue-collar work. Um, a lot of well-educated white-collar work is, um, is, is at risk. Um, and it's something that I think for some time now people have you know, assumed away. Mm. Um, but our analysis actually said that like, they actually should be more worried. Yep. Um, and so, uh, so I think we, we might have a brave new world um, in, the next, in the next decade. Um, but... Let me just say, I love, I love saying all is not lost. <laughs> we're not, we're not um, completely in trouble. I mean, there's a lot of promise with what's happening from a technology standpoint um, in enabling better privacy um, in empowering people. Um, Rebecca, what is the thing that you found is most exciting out there in terms of a technolo- technological development um, that's kind of pushing the privacy space forward? Oh, there's there are a lot of great um, privacy enhancing technologies. I'm really excited about uh, where industry is going with. I'm going to use a technical term with differential mm-hmm. privacy. <laughs> okay, can you explain that? So, that, so yeah. what they're trying to do is um, provide information and data, but making it more private. And they have a. Um, a formal definition of what more private means so that, for example, if Uber is going to share some of their transportation uh, information with policymakers, they can do it in a way where um, the the individual identities and the, the sort of what you can infer about whether someone took a Uber or not in that time frame, mm-hmm. so that that's more dare I say, anonymous, that Mm -hmm. it's more private. And just to see that these uh, companies are putting such resources into thinking about this hard is really heartening to me. Oh, great. So you're talking, they're abstracting portions of it that could be personally damaging or just insightful, um, but still allowing, you know, others to take value from the data. Yeah, so they're working on ways to, like, maybe aggregate the information so that you can get useful information about populations without necessarily learning about whether Bill took an Uber to get here or not. Very good. Lyft. Lift. Mm-hmm. All right. Okay. Um, I, I think oh, I'm sorry. Uber We're in Pittsburgh. Uber. Uber. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, incidentally, if anybody can hook me up with one of the uh, self-driving Ubers, that, that would be awesome. Um, I, I keep calling, hoping that I would get one, but I haven't yet. Um, so, uh, Ashande, same question to you. I mean, what in the AI space um, makes makes you excited in terms of uh, the development of technology? I'm liking a lot of the work that's happening on on explainable AI trying to make um, artificial intelligence systems, or more specifically machine learning systems, explain their decisions, either by forcing them to explain what goes into them or coming up with top-level abstractions of what they're doing internally. Um, I also like the work on uh, adversarial machine learning, um, trying to safeguard. So it turns out that many machine learning systems are they are not very robust to, to injection of noise, to injection of what we might call input viruses. You add a little bit of, you change the input signal a little bit, and then what a, what a system recognizes as a panda is now recognized as, say, a banana or something like that. And so if you're using these types of systems for, for autonomous vehicles, you should be worried about how robust those types of vision, those machine learning-based um, systems are. Um, I'm liking the work being done there. Um, there's probably going to be a lot more interesting things coming out. It's a very fast, fast-moving area. Okay. My last question before we go to questions from the audience. Um, so uh, for, I would say since, uh, well, as long as I can remember, but for quite some generations now, the U.S. has had the benefit of thinking that we are the leader um, uh, in, you know, the brain, the brain trust uh, for te- technology, period. Um, is that true now? And if it is true now, um, is there any risk and specifically, I'm asking about AI, although mm. I, I want the answer for privacy as well. Uh, I think it's still true in the AI space for now. Um, the, 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 the wrench, the spanner in the works is we don't have as robust as, as robust a policy for, for improving our AI capability long term compared to a country like, say, China. And uh, this is where the concern about how privacy impacts the development of artificial intelligence comes into play. The more data you have, the more, the more of an ecosystem of machine learning, of artificial intelligence you can develop within the country. We have 
Rebecca might disagree. We have it's not non-existence of privacy requirements or privacy regulations. They do exist, but compared to China, we are kind of stringent, and so that limits some applications that might be feasible, that might be viable. In China, they have almost none of those requirements, none of those um, none of those um, leashes. That makes them more. That makes it easier for them to gallop ahead in this space. Uh, I, I guess I, sometimes I worry that our privacy concerns hamstrings us, but at the same time, I, I wonder maybe having privacy constraints means we just get to be more in, we just get to apply more ingenuity to artificial intelligence. I, I've been seeing some work on the combination of differential privacy and machine learning, trying to learn, do the same amount of learning, be intelligent, but in a way that preserves the privacy of the data subjects in the data set. It's, it's promising work, but it's still a long way to go before it's the state of the art. So, Okay. Rebecca, what do you think? Can you see straight after what Ashande just said? <laughs> so uh, responding to Ashande first, it doesn't always have to be a trade-off. Mm. I, I don't think that uh, protecting human rights necessarily means that we're going to stifle innovation. I think we have a lot of smart engineers who can do both at the same time. Mm. And if we, if we stop viewing it as a trade-off, that one hampers the other, mm -hmm. then we can move forward with this, yes, it's a constraint, but it's an interesting constraint. Um, in terms of uh, sort of what's going on in the rest of the world, with privacy in particular, there's new uh, upcoming regulation in the EU oh. called the GDPR. And it, I think it's going to be really fun and really interesting to see how industry responds to that. I think they're mm -hmm. going to... EU companies, companies that are uh, dealing with data of EU citizens are really going to have to innovate to meet those regulations in the privacy space. And it's just going to be fun to see uh, what they come up with. That's great. Our definition of fun might be different. Than that, <laughs> but, uh, but, but that's great. So I just want to, before we open it up, I want to thank the two of you um, for, for sitting up here and talking. I, one of the things that hopefully came across in this discussion um, is that we have a really rich set of perspectives um, at RAND. We, we try to recruit to have um, people who are, think differently about problems and um, are expert enough to back up their, their thoughts and, uh, and perspectives. So thank you so much for putting that on display tonight. Um, I, I really enjoyed the discussion. I've worked closely with both of you. So thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Rebecca. Now I've figured out from what you said is why on Friday afternoon when I get in my car, my phone says, it's only 15 minutes to your massage appointment. <laughs> and I now know why Spotify gives me certain clues about things to listen to. But my question is about security versus privacy. I mean, right next door is a software engineering institute that's working 24 hours a day to protect the internet, to protect defense department things. But all that information is coming out in the private sector. So if you talk about these internet companies saying, we promise that we're going to differentiate the privacy and we won't share this information here, we won't share this information there. But somebody else can get into their system. So it's the security aspect. It's it's say trust us, we'll protect your privacy. But somebody else in Russia or Korea maybe hacks into that system for some other reason and the last thing that happens is you lose your privacy. Yeah. Yeah, so absolutely uh, we need security safeguards on the data to help protect the data. We, and there are ways to um, think through how to both protect security and privacy. Uh, one thing to keep in mind is if we don't have that data, no one can hack into it or breach it. Mm -hmm. Of course, that it gives this trade-off of then you can't use it for cool AI stuff, um, cool machine learning issues. Um, so I'm not sure I'm completely answering your question, but um, there, I think one thing that helps dis that helps me think through when are we talking about privacy and when are we talking about security is um, privacy can be invaded without necessarily a malicious attack. 
It can be an advertising company that thinks they're providing you with cool ads, but they're just using it in a way that you don't expect. Um, you're surprised by it. It feels a little creepy. It feels like you're being watched. Whereas usually when we think of security, uh, it's formally defined as there being someone who's deliberately malicious. So you can have a privacy invasion without that deliberate intention. So I, yeah. I would just add in that um, we're in a very um, promising time right now because of the the uh, capability that we have from a computing power standpoint. Um, and some 30-year-old approaches to cryptography um, that have taken, you know, hours and days to, to, to actually enact. Um, we're now getting into a close to seconds um, and minutes, um, which means that we're closer to being able to put real state-of-the-art or beyond state-of-the-art cryptography against some of these cons- security concerns. Um, and that's because of our computing um, prowess. So that's exciting. What sort of underlies all of these issues, to me at least, is the data hmm. and who owns the data and who controls access to your data. And do you have the option to opt in or opt out and control how it's used? So I guess that falls more into the privacy side of things, but um, so I'm not really sure exactly what the question is other than uh, <laughs> what is being done on that front uh, as far as who owns hmm. the rights to your data. Uh, yeah, just as, sort of as a side to that, too, though, is the fact that as some of these Internet companies become bigger and bigger players, they end up becoming the owners of all the data. Mm. And so then you end up with these concentration of power issues, uh, which also maybe you could address. So I, I want to quickly start and then hang out. <laughs> One of the things we have been talking about here is, um, is how do you build a, a system through which people can understand the value of their data? Um, because right now we use so many things, and we'll just take, um, you know, a, choose your search engine. Um, the search engine, you go in and you type in that you want to search for something, they're taking and they're monetizing that knowledge about you. Well, maybe you'd be willing to not use their search engine if, um, if they're monetizing it in a way in which you're, you're not happy or you, they're not sharing some portion of that with you. Maybe there's a marketplace that, you know, that grows up between, um, the different search engines saying, well, we'll give you, to use ours, we'll give you this benefit back because we're going to monetize it in this way. But you start talking about it more in this kind of bartering space where the, the uh, individual has agency. Um, and we've been thinking about how do you build a system through which you can empower the individual to have agency in those sorts of discussions because right now it, it doesn't exist, right? I mean, it's you either use it and it's free and they take your data or you don't. Mm-hmm. Um, Rebecca, I'm sure you have something to add to that. No, so that's a great point. I think um, so one thing I will say about data ownership is that Although in general I'm an optimist, I do feel in the U.S. the cat's out of the bag on that one. It's going to be really hard Mm -hmm. for us to change the systems in place to get ownership back of our own data. Uh, But the EU does have this, has a different framework. Um, So some of those things might impact us. We might get some sort of leakage protection effects. Um, Another thing about data ownership that's interesting to keep in mind is in the U.S., we tend to assume that the individual is responsible for protecting their own data. So if someone's data gets leaked, you will hear people say, well, you fool, why were you using Facebook? Mm -hmm. Or, you know, sort of really put the burden on who whoever shared information or was using this device to not have read the privacy policy or not have gone through all the controls. But it's actually a really huge burden to put on the user, and they have very little control. And the controls that they have are often opt-in or opt-out. You use it all or you use it or you don't use it at all. So we definitely need to think through not only the expectation that users are responsible because in reality, they can't be. Um, but also, what sort of controls we can give people that they can use and they can understand, and they're not just going to you know, click away because they want to use the app. So the EU's GDPR, doubling down on mm-hmm. the point, they, they've reconceived um, data ownership away from co- companies to actual people, and they, they legislate a right to, to be able to object, to be able to correct, to be able to rescind the, the use of their data. I, I, I'm curious to see how feasible that is in the real world when, once it goes into force in two months, three months. It's going to be fun. Yes, yeah. <laughs> oh, you think it'll be fun, too. <laughs> well, mostly because, you know, chaos is fun. Yeah. <laughs>
Hi. Um, actually, my questions, two real quick questions related, one to the uh, privacy question or the data question. Um, is, could Google exist today if it didn't collect all this data for free? If somebody, actually, if somebody, if Google had to actually pay for all the data it collects on all of us through emails and through mapping and everything else, that was just sort of an offhand question. The other one relates to AI, uh, and I'm thinking automobiles, which I don't know if it really fits into this sort of thing, but as more and more of these cars are becoming more smart, they can slow the car down <coughs> and avoid accidents. Does that sort of data, as it's collected, sent to insurance companies, sent to the government, sent to elsewhere, is that something that's going to be... Uh, going to be happening more and more, and ultimately the question is, what does the public policy, what do the legislators think about all this stuff, and does Rand ever talk to, to, the, to the lawmakers who ultimately are going to be the ones to tell whether it's possible for the insurance company to pick up on every bit of data that they've collected from the automobile, for example? Yeah, so we, we do, um, to every extent um, and opportunity we have, um, we talk with the lawmakers and policymakers. Um, the problem, and this is not... Um, this is not a knock on uh, those those individuals, but they're ill-equipped to understand the specifics of, of a lot of these technologies. Um, in some of these spaces, the the for-profit firms are are really just I mean plowing forward to make the policy um, before the policymakers can even get there, just based on you know what are going to be the behavioral norms. Mm. Um, and establishing that space, and then the policymakers have a constrained environment through which to work or w which to work in. Um, one of the things that we try to do is take every, as I mentioned, take every opportunity to go spend time um, to try to demystify um, some of these technologies and the way in which some of this data can be used um, to inform those policymakers so they could just make better decisions. They don't need to be an expert in deep learning, for example. They just need to know that like such a thing exists. It's at play here. It's using this data there. That data gets funneled over there, and it's putting this you know, constituency at risk, right. as an example. Um, and right now, very few parties are playing the role of... Um, uh, of, of that, uh, you know, expediter, if you will. Yeah. Can I add to that? Um, th there is also, I, I know of at least one startup that's collecting information about how people drive to inform insurance pricing. And uh, there are two minds. There's a privacy, there's a privacy angle on this, but there's also the public good angle. If you think about it, insurance is sort of a public good. You insure against um, catastrophic risk. And so getting all that data helps you measure more precisely the risk of each each person and price that correctly in the sense that improves the efficiency of the insurance market but then there's a privacy angle here which needs to be taken into account and on the point about um, would Google exist if they collected all that data I would argue well I don't there's a, there's the argument to be made that they might have been better incentivized to correctly price the how people pay for the how people what they pay people for their data will they be as big as they are now that's a counterfactual I can't answer. If you're seriously, I might almost say neurotically concerned about privacy, I wonder if Asande hasn't given you a perfect solution to your problem, namely multiple names, that is to say multiple your life into different regions and have a different identity in acting in Okay, I can talk about it as an experiment of n equals one. I've tried this for a few years. Uh, what I found is patterns of life of life are very robust. Like even if I use different names for different parts of my life, there are enough. There's enough correlation between them that you can make sense of this. In fact, uh, medical insurers rely on this precise fact to be able to identify which trails belong to one individual to prevent insurance fraud. Yeah. Uh, it's, it turns out it's not a very <laughs> robust solution going forward. I think, yeah, I think uh, the example of um, uh, all, all they need is three points of information about where you were and when you were there to uniquely identify... Most people, I can't remember yeah, if it was yeah, 96 like, or 97 percent of the people. I think it's now percent. You know, the majority of people, all we need is three points. Where were you and when were you there? We don't need your name. We don't need your birth date. We yeah. don't need your social security number, but we know who you are. Location you're, is extremely. You're uniquely identified, yeah. Yeah, yeah location so. is extremely, um, extremely identifiable. Yeah. Um, I have a question regarding um, just data collection in itself, but mostly in the space of minority data. Um, and Rebecca, you were talking about um, how information gets gathered 
among different population groups. And Pittsburgh is home to the biggest number of Bhutanese refugees in the city <laughs> and Somali refugees. And I think um, there's, there's, there seems to be this trend of publicly available data on pop minority populations that's not as much, not as um, well collected and visible, um, which then, you know, provides this, I think, information gap when it comes to organizations that have the burden to service these minority populations. Um, so I wanted to get your take on if you see that as an issue at all um, from some of the work that you've done and how um, we could imp improve if there's a need to improve in that sector to kind of make these populations more visible um, so it leads to more effective decision making from the perspective of organizations that are in place to just serve them um, mm. and help them acclimate, for example. Um, so. That's uh, a great question, and I need to just sort of noodle on that for a second to think it's, I mean, there's no question we need information about people to better serve them. Um, if they're vulnerable populations, we need to think harder about how to protect that information. If you're gathering information about a vulnerable population, do you have an extra burden in thinking about how to protect uh, how much, where are you going to store it? How are you going to encrypt it? What are you going to do? Who are you going to share it with? Um, are you, could you potentially be sharing that information with someone who's going to use it to cause harms to them? Um, that's sort of a not very good answer. I, I love your question. It's not something I thought about, but it's definitely true that in Pittsburgh we have these, um, some of our like immigrant communities are really quite spread out and disparate and it's hard for many reasons to sort of make that community and to provide services for them and how do we get that data I don't know. Do you have an AI solution to that, Oshande? <laughs> so, <laughs> I do not. <laughs> I, have, I mean, I just have a, a thought, which is um, that, I mean, I think more and more we need uh, you know, data, data scientists in, in organizations um, uh, like that. Uh, and uh, data science is a, is a phrase that gets um, kind of thrown around. Um, but let me just put a little bit of perspective on it. So if you're gonna if you're gonna make a product like a car or something like that, you need um, you start with the ore that you get from the ground, right? And you turn that into you know some combinatory metal, and then you turn that into screws or the pieces, right? And then you turn it into the car. Um, for data, you start with a signal, right? Something that's out there, um, and that moves to you know some type of information. And when it gets to be the data, it's when you're organizing it, right? Like it's when you're it's it's when you're putting it into um, some sort of structure, and that's where we fall down right now. Um, because it isn't that we don't have information about those people; um, it is instead that. Um, or the information isn't available, let me put it that way. Like, you could collect it. It's just that we're not structuring it in the right way. We're not collecting it in the right way for, for proper use at the end. And at the end of data, it's not, that's not the end state. The end state is intelligence, right? You know, you, you have a analysis that brings you to intelligence. So this data science piece, I think, is becoming more and more important. Um, the risk right now is that we've just gone through this big data boom, so there's more cases where there's just so much data that people um, infer uh, you know, causality in different places when, in fact, it's just the data tricking them. Um, and there's just so much data they feel like they have to analyze it, they have to do something with it, um, and you don't have informed people kind of leading that analysis. So there's more cases where there's just too much, this glut of data, um, but the cases where you don't have enough, it's still this idea of how is this structured? Um, how is it put together and how is it then collected into that structure? That's what those communities are missing right now, in, in my opinion. We're trying to train our colleagues to be data scientists, right? Mm -hmm. um, to think through that, to enrich our work. I would also, <laughs> I, I would be interested in, in figuring out how much the uh, people, people in minority communities like the immigrant community to mention, how much they deliberately choose to go off grid. That mm -hmm. would be an interesting angle to, uh, to explore because that, that might be a rational choice mm -hmm. in some cases, especially if decisions made on your data can be used to negatively affect you. So they are, they're, they're all this balance, and I'm wondering, it, it require further thought, I guess, as, as I'm thinking. Most of what you've talked about is these sort of awesome capabilities of artificial intelligence, and um, you know we are kind of astounded by them, I think, on a daily basis. But I'm curious, like, what are some of the limits? Like, where are 
men and women still way better than AI? And are those going to be around for a while? And um, I mean, we started off by talking about killer robots, or even shooting people. I mean, I guess killer robots per se don't exist, but I'm guessing we are droning people in Afghanistan based on AI collection, and we who knows how good the data is. Um, so uh, it does seem like we. We're using it in enormous ways, but um, what are the true limits, or where are we still ahead as humans? That's that's an excellent question, and that's like a sixty-four thousand dollar question when it comes to uh, figuring out the future of the labor market. Uh, there are a couple of hypotheses that have been written about this idea that um, humans are inherently better at um, perceptual manipulation, all these tiny, tiny physical manipulations, which is why that's the argument for why there isn't as much job loss in the really low-skilled area, because those are working on very small details. There is the argument that it's also uh, when you have to deal with a lot of creativity, social creativity, humans are better than, than machines in that space. Um, I, w- I would argue that those are hypotheses that are not fully vetted. Um, I don't know the full limits of artificial intelligence. Uh, we we argued in our in our paper that uh, this idea of planning, humans are planning, automated planning. Humans are generally better at planning for long term rewards. At least that's what we think at the moment. Uh, in a five years of reinforcement and research can. Five years of future reinforcement learning research can up, upend that assumption. So, I, it's not an answer to your question. It's just a bunch of hypotheses that are out there right now. So I'm going to put out an answer that you may or may not agree with, but for any particular AI system that's narrow, it can be very good at a narrow task. Mm-hmm. Uh, the machine that can beat you at chess is not going to beat you at telling the difference between a picture of mm-hmm. three chihuahuas and a picture of blueberry muffins. Like that same system will get those pictures messed up, but it'll beat you at chess. So if you're just thinking about like general intelligence, human, you know, being able to do many tasks, humans are better right now. I can't speak for the future, but in a lot of narrow tasks, we see machines beginning to outperform us. Yes, definitely. Yeah. So to the extent that something is routine and recipe based or rules based, um, it's, it's quite easy to automate. Um, the concern that I have, and you were talking about the drone strikes, um, the U.S. military by, you know, deliberately keeps humans in the loop. Um, the, the reason they're able to do that and deliberately do it is because they know what systems they're using and they know when they're dealing with artificial intelligence. Some of the concerns that I have um, at the general populace area is that we actually don't know when we're dealing with an AI system. A very simple example, if anyone's applied for a loan recently, um, it is unlikely that that loan decision was made by a human. It's likely that it was delivered to you by a human, and particularly if you were um, uh, contested it, you talked to a human, um, and they might have said, well, it would have been helpful if your credit score had been this or that, or it would be helpful if you had more cash on hand. Or, But they're not actually knowledgeable of exactly what would have turned from a no to a yes. And that's because the system itself is is determining that. So when you don't know that you're dealing with AI, it's harder to um, uh, demand that uh, the humans stay in the loop. And uh, that's one of my concerns. I mean, it goes back to the one of the very first things that we talked about tonight, which is this idea that AI as a term is just a buzzword. I mean, it's it's a uh, it really Everything from very simple, uh, you know, rules-based um, uh, economics or statistics, all the way to you know, whole brain emulation. Like that's a really big space, um, and yet we talk about it as this just one thing. Um, so if we know when it's in play, we can keep humans in the loop. Um, if we allow that to be obscured or abstracted, we're in for some surprises. Rebecca, I was struck by your example of a teacher being fired by a computer effectively. Is, is that where we're going? Is that what's happening? Yeah. Or is there, have we ceded the, yeah. the right for human beings to be making those judgments? So that's a true example. It's uh, from the book Weapons of Math Destruction, which I recommend highly. Um, they were making decisions about uh, whether to keep teachers on or fire them based on AI in this broad definition or some, you know, algorithmic profiling. Um, It's being used to make decisions about job applications, about 
it is being used in a lot of ways that can really impact an individual's life. Um, and so we need to be thinking carefully about it. It can really touch your own autonomy and your ability to make decisions, but your ability to get a job and keep your job. Um, so it, it's important. We need to pay attention and we need to understand it. Sentencing. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Sentence in another high impact area, right? Sentencing in the, in the court system. I mean, mm-hmm. humans have this um, automation bias, right? If a machine tells it to us, we likely trust it um, because someone smarter than us programmed that machine. And I, I, I say that in a um, in a very <laughs> respectful way, knowing that there are very smart people in this room right now. Um, but but we have this bias toward just, uh, you know, if it's coming out of this system in an automated fashion, I'm likely to, it's likely to at least make me second guess myself. Um, and as we've already discussed tonight, like if some implicit assumption um, by the programmer was baked into that thing, um, it could give us, you know, the slightly wrong answer that affects someone's life from a, you know, court sentencing standpoint, right? Like real things. Um, so, yeah, it's a, it's a big question. I've got um, two questions. The first is pretty simple um, on privacy, which is, uh, so, you know, if you look at the, the new EU policy, right, it has a pretty clear set of objectives that it's targeting. But from kind of an implementation perspective, it seems that um, one of the main kind of points of failure, failure that's been introduced into the system now is this really heavy centralization of data that can be that can be um, compromised, right, or can be controlled um, by someone with that, with different objectives than the original originator of that data. So, are you aware of much kind of technical work or architectural research into the decentralized management and even mm. storage of personal data that's perhaps then somehow requestable or I don't know somehow centralizable in an, in an active and intentional way, but still actually physically? owned and controlled by the originator of it. So that's my simple mm. question. The the other one is... That's on, your simple question? <laughs> no, right? Uh-oh. <laughs> it's, I just think no research that talks about that. The other one is on AI. It's a little more um, kind of stepping back. I think something that underpins a lot of these conversations is that specifically talking about sort of machine learning, AI, we don't... I don't know that we've necessarily proven that AI is doing is really doing anything qualitatively new or novel on top of human behavior and isn't just a sort of an amplifier and an, an automator of human behavior. Essentially, yeah. you know, if AI has bias, is it just AI is bias at scale, right? Mm. Um, so if we accept that that's a possibility, does that, do you see um, kind of the risk, what's the risk reward profile you see in looking at that as a prompt for policymakers, right? Mm. The problem isn't that they don't understand AI technology. The problem is actually that we think it's about AI technology when in fact it's just about bias. Mm. I wouldn't discount that amplifier Mm -hmm. effect so easily. Um, The fact that it can, that AI can make decisions at scale uh, affecting massive groups of people uh, or, you know, just so much scale so quickly and may or may not have a feedback loop if it is wrong. Um, I, th- I don't think you can discount all those issues with AI. So even if it is the same mistakes that humans are making, it's doing it differently. Yeah. The, the risk-reward situation there, so when you brought up the idea of risk-reward, it, it came up, it brought to mind the conversation of, well, this system has high accuracy on this task than humans, but there is this systematic disparity in error rates, and that that might not sound like a big deal, but in some systems it is a big deal. Um, in Say in ad- advertisement place, and that might not be a big deal, but in criminal justice that's a huge deal. Um, so it, it's, it's a fair point. Maybe there's a different way of framing the problem. We'll explore it. So I think question one, which I love your simple questions. Uh, Question one, um, there there are some cryptographic solutions that I'm not going to dive into right now, but that allow for some of what I think that they're suggesting they want they want done, um, and to keep keep the uh, the individual human having agency. Um, uh, With point number two, uh, 
at a very in a, the more sim, if I if we have a span of AI to the you know whole brain emulation all the way to just like the automated set of tasks that it learns you know from iteration to iteration, um, somewhere in there. Um, is the story of two scientists who are trying to build, um, you know, a new type of cryptography. They built an AI to do so. The AI built that crypt- crypto system. The mm-hmm. uh, scientist said, "Let us in," and the AI said, "Just kidding," <laughs> um, and and didn't. Right? I mean, it wouldn't provide. I mean, it was fully secure. Um, so, uh, and that's a real story. So, like, it's not, now, is that damaging? No, that's not on, like, nuclear systems, and that's not, but, like, it is, it, I mean, it's been, that, that's occurred in, you know, laboratory environments. So, um, you know, I, there are some things that are, you know, amplified um, effects, but there are others that are just completely unique um, paths. I'm sort of glad there were other people asking a lot of very good questions because I've been trying to pull together two or three things you said into one question, and it's damn hard. (laughs) So let me try. Uh, Basically what I heard said is there's an incredible amount of data out there where privacy or not, you guys got it. You guys not meaning the three of you, but the people who want to use systems of some sort, AI, whatever you want to call them, to make decisions. Uh, That you really usually need for some things only a very small set of information. Remember somebody said only two, three pieces of information and that's enough. And then it was said we try to talk to the legislators so they would understand what we're doing. And I thought, you know, what people are telling me is we are doing benefits analysis like crazy and there are these legislators And maybe at some point, lawyers, if you start firing too many people on an AI system and have to go to court, uh, they're telling us we can't have all our toys and there may be a downside. And I'm wondering, where are the Luddites? Now, the Luddites may have been crazy, but they at least were saying, hey, people are being hurt. Uh, You have a responsibility to worry about that as well as the benefits. At least that is a view that I sort of heard being alluded to, but put down. Mm-hmm. And I don't think you want to put it down. So, I mean, I think one of the challenges, and I'm not sure that this is going to get directly to your question, but like one of the challenges is like it, after World War II, a lot of technology development was was in um, weaponizing nuclear um, the nuclear power. Uh, or nuclear sources, excuse me, um, in different ways and more efficient ways and whatnot. And you really only had nation states playing in that space, right? So, so you had you were able to have these discussions. Um, there weren't markets built around nuclear weapons at that point. There weren't like big, you know, startup uh, 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 cities being built around uh, that technology development. And you can we can you know take other examples in that space where you had very few players, very specific roles very specific rule sets and treaties and whatnot. Today, you have markets. I mean, everybody in this room is responsible for what we're talking about because every time you pick up your smartphone and use an app or you, you know, use your computer or you jump in the you know, automated Uber or whatnot, you are feeding the system. And so now you don't have just two or three or 10 big players. You have you know, billions of players um, and so you don't have the ability to um, to have the Luddites um, kind of just stand off to the side and um, and bring you know some pers- different perspective to the space. It's moving too fast. Hi, uh, as a, a member of Pittsburgh's AI community, I want to thank Rand for this. This is really an interesting event. Uh, however, it seems to me that both uh, by the panelists and the audience, there's this undercurrent of negativity around AI mm. and the implications that this technology might have on our society because it's not maybe good enough, right? It's not, it's not doing as much. It's not perfect, right? So that's a problem. And I guess I would challenge all of you to think, and I don't think many of you are in this situation, so I would challenge you to um, resist your inherent bias and to think about the fact that if you are a person who does not have access to justice, 
or does not have access to education or does not have access to health care. This technology has an unbelievable, represents an unbelievable opportunity to democratize those things and provide people around the world with access to, to all of those things. And we should be looking at not only the challenges that are inherent with AI, but also the unbelievable benefits that, that, that this technology will bring to our society. Uh, yeah, fair, uh, yeah, fair enough, point taken. Uh, we, we did make the point earlier on that, yes, AI is extremely important, and oftentimes most of the conversation has been about killer robots, but there is this whole other discussion that's not taking place about how to apply the benefits, the fruit of all this ingenuity to places that are less less served, and it has the potential to, to change the, 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 the space. But it, it's more, I guess I want to add a little bit more to, to your initial um, statement of the bias. It's, it's not so much that um, there is an ex- that people think, well, I don't, see, I don't see it this way. I don't see that AI is not perfect. I think it's doing exactly what we design it to do. Now, the question becomes, what values are you targeting? If you don't articulate those values, then it will do what you ask it to do, but it won't do it in a way that you accept as a society. Essentially, how do you create artificial intelligence that's more aligned to societal norms? That's the question. I, I don't have a problem with the p- perfectness or imperfectness of, of AI. I, I'm, I'm more worried about the alignment of the development of AI systems to what we care about. We want fairness. We, we want our AI systems to be fair. That's a, a, another norm to impose on AI. We want them to respect privacy. That's a norm we impose on them. These are all societally um, desired norms that is, that's separate from the AI technology itself. They were trying to kind of integrate into the system. That's the that's the hard part. So I, I think it's a fantastic point. So thank you for making it. Um, I think the reason that we move toward more toward the um, considering the downside risk in a lot of these discussions is because humans are inherently bad at calculating downside risk, um, and we tend to overlook it. Um, we tend to look at the shiny, wonderful part of the object um, and not the dangerous part. Um, and from a policy standpoint, it's extremely important to understand both. Um, so for our, you know, going into talking about what we were going to discuss tonight, we wanted to make sure that people didn't walk out with a whiz-bang, um, you know, isn't AI wonderful, and look at all the wonderful things it can do, and, like, we're moving into this new era of, you know, age of automation, um, and look at all the wonderful things that are, you know, will be afforded to us. Um, aren't we so lucky to be able to think only of those things? Um, we need to also think about the risks. Um, we also need to think about making sure that the people who are making decisions that affect all of us are properly informed um, and educated to the extent necessary to make those decisions. Um, I do think it has been um, a large disservice that some of our um, uh, tech, uh, technological kind of uh, luminaries, so the Elon Musks of the world and the Stephen Hawkings of the world, have written these open letters saying, you know, beware of the existential threat of AI. Um, one could look at that and say, uh, aren't we so lucky that we're in a privileged state that we can worry about that? We don't have to worry about getting our water. We don't have to worry about our crop yields. We don't have to worry about all these other things that they do need to worry about in the developing world where AI can play a huge, huge role. So, um, yes, again, your point is well made. Um, tremendous potential. Um, but humans are terrible at calculating downside risk. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. To learn how you can attend programs at RAND, visit us online at www.rand.org events.